0: Welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher in Utah, and I want to change the mental health game. The Therapy Thoughts Podcast is all about breaking down therapy related topics and making mental health information easy to understand and super accessible. So, join me for quick and direct educational episodes. And some deeper dives with experts from around the world. Together, we are gonna break down stigma. We're gonna help each other make peace with mind, body, and food. We're gonna make therapy cool and invest time in our mental health. Let's do it here, one therapy thought at a time. What's up, Therapy Thoughts people? We are here with another awesome podcast episode. I get to interview the one and only Dr. Courtney Tracy, known as The Truth Doctor on social media. She is an addiction and mindfulness expert. She fuses the stimulating intelligence of a research-informed PsyD With the honesty of a true friend and the compassion of a loving mother, Dr. Tracy has been using her talents to develop, run, and create space for programs from nonprofit agencies to luxury high-profile treatment centers to her own community-based adult addiction clinic called Good Heart Recovery. Since obtaining both her LCSW license to practice and her doctoral-level degree, she's been featured in numerous news outlets. Always leaving us wanting more, Dr. Tracy is known as the AOC of therapy, and she's changing the game And y'all know I'm all about changing that mental health game. I'm grateful we get to chat today. So enjoy our discussion, breaking down substance use disorders and addiction. It's a good one. What's up, y'all? Therapy Thoughts podcast, and we have a freaking all-star today, Dr. Courtney Tracy in the house. What's up, girl? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat. Are we kind of like in this niche Are we, are we like the, the social media therapists? Is that what we are?
1: I mean, I guess, I mean, I think, you know, social media, it's, it's kind of like the media at this point, you know, besides yeah. like, if you don't want to hear about the bullshit, then you kind of go onto social media, avoid what you want to avoid, but we're here. We're spreading the message. We're helping people out. I think it's good.
0: Yeah. We're, um, I think you started, like, didn't you start on TikTok? Is that kind of your your place?
1: I did. Well, actually, I started on Instagram, and then my cousin, who told me to get on Instagram in the first place, was like, check out TikTok. And, you know, the typical story of, no, I'm not going to do that. What is that app? Aren't, isn't that where you lip sync or something? And I got on it, and the first <laughs> thing that I noticed about it was actually the authenticity and vulnerability Of people in general, like a lot of people on that app are talking about their mental health and most of the time they're not getting shunned for it. A lot Hmm. of the time it's encouraging more people to do so. And so I went on there. I'm at like 1.2 million at this point on that app, which is crazy. And so yeah, social media can impact a lot of people and this app is really doing something for sure.
0: Yeah. And you're also spreading therapy, education, and empowerment on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it going in the social media world? I
1: think it's going good. You know, I, uh, there were other therapists that kind of came up at the same time as me on TikTok. And they've had a lot of pushback for some reason. And I haven't really had any, which is pretty cool. And, you know, mostly just positive feedback about being real and not being afraid to share who you really are, and that that gives people, you know, one of the main things I hear is that people say, oh, so you're messed up and you're a therapist. That means I'm messed up, I can be a therapist. You know, it just normalizes that we're not these people that have these perfect lives and coping skills that work 100% of the time, and therefore, you know, we're successful. So I, I love it. I love letting people know that we're human beings. Because the profession, to a degree, doesn't really want people to know
0: that. 100%. It doesn't want people <laughs> to know that. Literally, right? Like, our training is super rigid and, and patriarchal of, like, be a blank slate. It, it, it trains us to be, like, above, a separate from our client and to never disclose our issues, right? Right. And yet, we have to, like, build this relationship of trust and people need to be able to relate to us by being robotic. I don't understand.
1: I don't either. I don't either. You know, I've tried to go. So here's my dilemma as a therapist. I've tried to go to therapists. And I haven't liked any of them. And all the ones that I have, liked, it's like, I don't want you to be my therapist. I want you to be my friend, because I'm a therapist too. And so I run into these issues of like, all the ones that I think could help me, I would rather be friend. And so basically, the goal is to get more people comfortable with Being a therapist and being themselves really so I don't have to choose between therapist and friend in my own life, but so everyone else can have that freedom to find someone that works for them. You know, therapists can make people really fucking uncomfortable and like, that's not the goal. And so if a lot of people are uncomfortable in therapy, we have to figure out why. And I think part of that reason is because we sit there, just like you said, like acting as though we have our shit together and sometimes the one thing that can really help people is knowing that they're not alone and being mm-hmm. human and mm-hmm. so i love that we do that
0: yeah and this is this is kind of your your wheelhouse preaching authenticity vulnerability mindfulness what got you into that passion
1: well i was mindless growing up i had a really difficult childhood where you know the thing is I always say i have a i've had a really difficult childhood and then when i try to relate it back to being authentic and vulnerable i think about that that was perhaps the two things the sole two things that i was actually afforded in my childhood was the ability to be me and the ability to not have my emotions ever be judged one way or another now my emotions were ignored a shit ton, but they were never invalidated in the way where I was directly told that who I thought I was or how I felt was wrong. Mm. So I could be me. And that, I think, is the one resilience factor that allowed me to get to where I am today. And I think with mindfulness, it has to do with that I was so trapped in my own mind that it was really the only thing that helped me get out of it. And so that's what I preach to people now: is authenticity, vulnerability, and mindfulness. Because I saw it change myself, mm. and every client that I've worked with so far, at least in those modalities.
0: Yeah, I love that. What's it like disclosing or being open about, you know, your mental health, your upbringing, your family of origin? Have, was it always comfortable for you to be transparent in that way, or have you grown into that?
1: It was really hard growing up. You know, I was a compulsive liar about who I was, where I lived, how much money we had, everything. I lied and I ran, you know, I ran with substances and I ran with lying and manipulation. And so really my freedom in life came from doing the opposite of that, realizing that I was running. And so when I'm vulnerable and talk about myself at this point as a therapist and the things that I've been through, it's like an intervention in itself
0: Mm.
1: for me and for other people too. Now, of course I have to mention every time I'm talking about self-disclosure as a therapist is there's boundaries and there's limits in the therapy room. And usually you don't self-disclose. It's like a last resort unless you think and can validate that that was the right thing to do in the moment in that session and to only disclose what you think could be beneficial solely for the client. But in social media... It's like, there's enough shit going around that makes you feel so bad about yourself. Just makes you feel so bad about yourself. Instagram has been, you know, primarily known for that with the perfect photos and the Photoshop photos. And and so when, when someone has mental health issues and they see a therapist saying like, I cried in the shower yesterday. They're like, oh, I did too. And that's okay. You know, it's like normalizing their symptomology just by being you Mm -hmm. and normalizing my own too, I guess it helps.
0: Yeah. That self-validation and us being vulnerable, even when people expect us to be perfect as therapists, I think that that's just getting your own back. That's the work being like, I'm allowed to be imperfect. Right. I love that. So you, you have, or have had an experience with substance abuse in your life? I have.
1: And right now, you know, I think a lot of people can perceive that someone that treats addiction either has overcome addiction or has never had addiction issues, you know, sort of one or the other. Um, And I'm like sort of, I'm still figuring it out, basically, you know, my dad drank and used a lot growing up. He wasn't really around my, I grew up with an alcoholic grandfather my mom was addicted to gambling, lots of addiction issues. So I started using really young. I've been with my husband for 15 years. And we used, we met when we were 14, started drinking, using mm-hmm. methamphetamine, all this stuff, a lot of stuff. And then I got into the addiction field because I thought it was really interesting about how us as human beings will take something outside of ourselves, put it inside of ourselves in order to make You know, make us feel pleasure, alleviate pain, um, have us forget past traumas that we've been in and then become addicted to it just because of the psychological and biological processes in the brain. It just fascinated me from a neurobiological level and a psychological level. And, you know, I'm still experimenting to figure out what works for me. I just recently took a year off of drinking. Then I went back into drinking and I tried it three times in the last three months one time everything went fine because I was at my in-laws had two drinks went home the other two times I ended up over drinking Mm -hmm. because they were really anxiety provoking situations they brought up past trauma I really did not enjoy it and so for me I think part of the message of working in substance use is that you don't have to stop drinking for the rest of your life if you don't want to And that's like a huge barrier for people to get into treatment or even consider looking at their substance use is like, I'm an alcoholic or an addict if I even want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. That's not, that's my, my belief is that that's not the case. Now, do I recommend that some people don't ever use again? Yeah. If their consequences have been so negative, but do I recommend that to everyone? No. And I think that there's flexibility. And so- And it's so normalized, we don't realize how manipulated we are in society when it comes to substances, you know, alcohol, tobacco, all of that, our own thoughts, so many of them aren't ours. And for me, it's important to help people understand substances, what they think about them, how it affects their body, how much they want to use, so that they don't have to be kind of pawns in this major (laughs) corporate ideology of numb yourself when you're feeling bad. You know, it's just mm. another reason to run. Mm.
0: This is fascinating. You're kind of a a rogue. <laughs> like, so anyone listening, I was in the substance abuse field for like seven years. I've been out of the game for five when I went into my own business. But, dude, the the standard, how I was trained was super hardcore 12-step, super hardcore abstinence. um, And it's interesting just being on Instagram. Like I've seen other therapists like you kind of say, like maybe it's not black and white, like abstinence may not be what every person, you know, recovering from substance use is going to do. And I'm, I was curious about that. So is the field evolving? Is this just like a different mentality? Like how do we move from kind of that all or nothing thought to people knowing what's right for them?
1: Hmm i love that i think that that's a great question and what came up for me when you said that was the state now at least in california because i own an addiction treatment center and the state says that we cannot one we have to have a relapse policy which i guess is normal across the board but it has to be lenient we have to accept that relapse is part of the process and we cannot turn someone away because they don't want to be abstinent Mm, we cannot yeah. turn them away because they're sober curious. We can't turn them away because they want harm reduction. We can't turn them away because they're addicted to opiates and want to be on Suboxone or methadone. Or, And we can't turn anyone away that has any prescription for any medication, even if it's a potentially addictive medication. So normally it would be like, you're addicted to alcohol. Let's not have you on any narcotics and anything addictive. And now the regulatory bodies are saying like, no, we need to have flexibility here because people are you know, they, they've done studies and I can't quote which one I'm referencing, but there is one out there that it says that when there's lacks on, res- when there's lacks on the restrictions, more people are open to the discussion even. And if more people are open to the discussion, which we're seeing in 2020, even if a discussion can occur, then we can make progress. If there's refusal of a discussion, then we're stuck right where we are, where we were, where we don't want to be. So the governments are becoming more lax. I mean, in Oregon, drugs are legal. And so we're really trying to separate drug use from strict standards, strict laws, strict protocols, strict interventions to give people the flexibility to say, maybe, maybe. And that's really important. You know, and I tell people, at least take a year. Like if you think that you want to use again at some point in the future, at least give yourself a year so that you can go through a full cycle of the holidays and work stress and family stress and interpersonal stress and stuff that's going on for you. And then after that year, and this is the one question I tell my clients to ask themselves before they start using again is, is there anything that I'm running from? And if there's anything that you're running from, then don't use Because all you're going to do is reinforce that you can run from that thing with the substance. And so we have to learn to have our own boundaries. If we're not going to say no forever, we have to know and be strict on ourselves, at least, of when we will say yes. And I think that flexibility helps people and may make more people live longer and happier.
0: Yes, this (laughs) is dope. I am just sitting here feeling like we're talking about it's very compare comparable to like sex ed. If all we teach is abstinence, it's like, we'll just don't mm-hmm. have sex. We know that doesn't work. So what are your alternatives? How do you stay safe? What do you do if you're feeling X, Y, and Z? But like, I love the idea of empowerment, informed consent, having a plan, knowing how to cope with those triggers, instead of just saying you can never do that again, that may not be realistic for everyone. So I think what you're Talking about is the ethical approach. Hmm. Thank you. That means a lot. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And okay, I have hard questions. We ready? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So one is related to organ, one is related to just treatment. Let's start with treatment. So when I worked in like a rehab facility, like luxury, people go there for 30 days, then they leave. Um, or even when I worked in, like, long-term residential for teens and they're there for, like, years. Mm -hmm. Dude, everyone everyone relapses, like, when Mm -hmm. they go home. And so there's kind of this cliche in the field, at least from my training, like, oh, residential doesn't work. Like, treatment doesn't work. So... What are your thoughts on that? How do we make treatment effective for folks if they're just going back to their systems and exposures and like vulnerabilities? We give them like these little holding cells for however Mm -hmm. amount of time and then they're back in their system and they're just kind of set up to fail. What do you, I don't know. What do you think? I think so much
1: about everything that you just said. Like (laughs) so much about it. I'm telling you, like I started working in treatment. Okay, this is like, Maybe one of the most embarrassing self-disclosures of me being in the treatment field is I was going to USC. I did it for the name. I have a lot of debt. I would make a different decision. I was living in LA and I was on Craigslist looking for work. And I saw this luxury treatment center come up. I Googled the name. I realized that Bob Forrest works there. He used to do the celebrity rehab show with Dr. Drew. And I was like, I'm going to become a famous addiction therapist, working with Bob Forrest. It was a joke. I was 23 years old. and I was like, this is it for me. And so I went and I worked in this luxury treatment center for three and a half years. And it was in Malibu. So people flew from all over the country. and in, And at first I was like wide eyed. I was like, I'm going to absorb everything. And I did absorb everything. I got promoted like seven times, started running the clinical department before I even had a master's degree. And at the same time, that gave me access to the administrative aspects of the program. And I was in my master's program. So I was starting to learn about efficacy and that the relapse rate was 60 to 80 percent. And why? And then I would watch people come back to treatment time and time again. And Malibu is a bubble. I watched. Okay, we opened up an outpatient center and I watched these people fly from the East Coast to Malibu, stay there from detox all the way through intensive outpatient basically using all of their benefits and then they'd fly back and they'd get like part-time jobs at a pizza place while they were doing this outpatient. Why are you getting a part-time job in Malibu for six weeks to fly back home, have no benefits for insurance? And then what are you going to do when you relapse? Go see a therapist once a week because your insurance won't authorize any more treatment for you. It pissed me off a lot. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like the fact that we're not acknowledging that this is a thing. It's like, I don't want to work in Malibu. I don't want to work in international treatment and national treatment. I want to work at a center that one, recognizes that the relapse rate is 60 to 80%. And two, treats people locally in the environment where they have to use the skills and so that's why I opened up my own place. I was like, and so at this place, you know, I've gained this social media following over the last year. People have reached out from all over the country. And I'm like, no, like I want to treat this city. You know, I want people to come to treatment, get their shit together and then go home and be able to utilize what they need to utilize in their environment. Mm. If someone does go to 30 days somewhere else, They need a good aftercare plan, but you can't really count on that, you know? So what's the protocol of the, of the inpatient place to ensure, I mean, humans have free will, but to ensure as much as we can, that they're going to follow through with the next steps, you know, and that they don't see this 30 day stay as a vacation. Because if you feel like your 30 day residential stay is a fucking vacation, you're not really doing the work, you know, you don't need to spend $80,000, for acupuncture and massage by the pool in Malibu, because you might die. You need to get your shit together and really dive deep. You should be exhausted and relieved at the end of a 30 day stay and ready to keep going.
0: Preach. <laughs> Freaking preach. I love this. So it, it is all about aftercare and that continuity and that like community involvement and connection. I love that idea. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to totally change subjects to my other question. <laughs> Oregon. So drugs are legal. The war on drugs made drugs illegal everywhere. Like when I worked in substance abuse, literally I was working with teenagers who would get pulled over for a broken taillight and like busted for weed. And they'd be in mm-hmm. freaking therapy three times a week for a year. Cause they were smoking some cannabis. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, Dude, I smoked more weed than you kids back in high school. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It was rough. So drugs being illegal, you know, lead to a lot of problems. Whatever. I'm already giving my opinion. What's your opinion? What's the deal with drugs being illegal? Should they be legalized everywhere? You're an addiction expert. You're someone who's experienced it. Like, what, What do you think? I think that
1: drugs are basically legal already in our own minds. We are using Oh, probably almost as much as we already want to whenever the hell we want under the radar. So like you said, the war on drugs played a huge role in, well, one made them illegal, made us gain money, made us have regulations on certain populations. And, you know, it just, it's like you don't want to mix the church and the state. You probably shouldn't mix what we're putting in our bodies either. I don't think that you should. And I think like, what One thing that government can provide, drugs being legal, is regulation. Purity can be helpful. I think that Portugal legalized all drugs, and their overdose rate and their addiction rate went down at least 50% within the first few years. I think that that's a lot of the research that's probably backing the fact that that's coming over into America now. Um Canada, you've seen like needle exchanges, you've seen harm reduction sites, and that's improved the streets of Vancouver specifically, like Dr. Gabor Matic speaks a lot about this in all of his books. And whenever he's presenting, I think that (laughs) humans have been documented as far back as 8,500 years ago, that we ingest things into our body to connect to God, to ease pain, to have pleasure, to experiment, whatever it is so like putting a law is not going to stop human nature that's been going on for centuries and thousands and thousands of years like what do you think you're doing just telling people it's illegal it doesn't change them it just makes them more afraid of you and then doing it in secret more so Mm. i'm all for it i am all for it you know there's that fear i mean of course like parents are concerned and loved ones can be concerned and people who know someone that's addicted can be concerned and i get that like i totally do i really get that and if someone wants to use they're going to use whether it's illegal or not most yes. of
0: the time this is making me think about the role of shame in recovery and right like the role of shame and like the addiction cycle and or even seeking treatment like what you're saying is people need an option there needs to be some flexibility there for them to even seek treatment but then the legalization would remove a lot of that shame barrier. And maybe you don't agree, or maybe you do, like we can't really work through addiction unless we're addressing shame.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people use because they're ashamed of something. Like even if it's not, even if shame isn't really easily identifiable in the beginning of someone trying to figure out why they're using to some degree, there's some shame there. And when one of the causes of the addiction becomes one of the outcomes of addiction or someone seeking addiction treatment, it's just creating the likelihood. It increases the likelihood that they may use again, you know, so we can't fight what we're trying to eliminate by (laughs) using what caused it in the first place.
0: I just wrote down that timestamp. That's the Instagram quote. (laughs) Right. Like we can't use what creates addiction as like an outcome. I love that idea. Um, Mm -hmm. I am really enjoying talking to you because it's extremely refreshing having Mm -hmm. come from a very rigid substance abuse training. I am learning a lot and I appreciate this because I think my soul agrees just with flexibility and informed consent and empowerment and authenticity and trusting the human ability to be resilient and recover. Like this lines up with what I believe. And it's nice to get to hear someone who's in this game really stand by this and you have the facts and the research. So this is partially just my curiosity. Um, I want to talk about addiction So, like, substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. What do you think about substances being an addiction? Is this a mental illness? Is this purely biological? Is this a choice? Because I was trained that this is not a choice. Addiction is not a choice, but recovery is. It's a literal disease. We can map that out in your brain physiologically. Tell me your understanding of, like, addiction, the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical conceptualization of that?
1: That's a big question. And (laughs) I will do the best I can to answer it. So what came up for me when you asked that was what I teach my master's level students when I teach the substance use class. And a lot of the times when they first get into the class, they have the same belief, you know, they're trained through just, you know, the general psychology classes that they've taken with the same The same backing and same understanding that you just described. And so, you know, for me, I think think that we make a choice initially, you know. But then, you know, even when I say that, then I think about, well, why would we make that choice? And it's usually trauma or society or peer pressure or our family seeing it, you know, we're mirroring our family's behaviors. And so is it really our choice? Because would we make that choice if we didn't have those external factors or a lack of internal coping or understanding? And so, you know, that's just, you know, the chicken or the egg. You can go around and around and around. Now, when There's studies that show, you know, okay, so it's like, how does someone become addicted? Like, well, they have a traumatic background, or it's in their genes, or whatever. And so they've done studies with rats, put them in a bunch of different environments. And the one that stands out the most is the one that didn't have, they didn't, wasn't exposed to any trauma, didn't have any genetic or biological backing of addiction, and then exposed them to alcohol. In general, the more that they gave the rat alcohol, the more that the rat drank alcohol, then they would crave it more water or alcohol. They'd constantly go back to the alcohol just simply because of habit. And so I think that that's where it comes in. And that's them saying like, there doesn't necessarily have to be a precursor. You can just become physically addicted. You don't have to have this, something that's messed up with you psychologically for you to have it or have genetics. You can be the the starting point of those genetic markers. So I think it's important to know that anyone can become addicted. I think some people think that they can't. And that's why I recommend Mm -hmm. like, anyone don't drink unless you're not running from anything (laughs) or you have like a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-control and a lot of people aren't taught that. So that's why we have what we have today, with so much substance use. I think, yes, I think recovery is a choice. I think that addiction, I think it's both. I really think it's both. And the reason why it's hard to say one or the other is because I've just met so many people where I feel like it's a it, there's sense of it being a choice and like the majority of it is that it's not I don't know do I think it's a a physical disease like you know I want to say yes to that and I want to say no to that because I don't see it any differently than any physical ailment and because our brain is an organ I think the reason why people get so like, confused when it comes to addiction is that it's has to do with the mind, you know, the dopamine pathways and (sighs) it's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than explaining the disease of liver of your liver. You know, we can, we can explain that alcohol use causes cirrhosis of the liver a lot easier than we can explain that alcohol use causes psychological or biological addiction in the brain. So we don't even Mm -hmm. know everything about the brain. So it's a hard question to answer. I feel like I didn't really answer it, but it's because it's because I believe that anything is possible when it comes to addiction because there isn't one pathway to it and there isn't one solution to it, and some people's addictions show up differently than other people's addictions. Some people are addicted physically more than they are addicted psychologically. Some people are addicted spiritually along with obviously you have to have psychological or physical addiction, but spiritually they just feel like they don't have any purpose or any meaning in their life at all. And so when they even think about the concept of living in this life with their own consciousness in their head that no one else will ever know, it's like they'd rather numb out, you know? And then that happens. Like people use substances to connect with gods or they do ayahuasca to go on adventures in Central America and really dive inward and see what's there. And so there can really be just different ways to get addicted, different reasons to use and different ways to heal.
0: I love this. You, I want you to revisit two things you've said and give me a little bit more of like a bullet point list for one, you said why people take drugs. And when you said connect with God, I wrote that down. Cause I, that was a new concept to me, even though like all my friends use hallucinogens like to to have some kind of experience, I didn't really connect that dot. And I think that's super powerful. Why else do people take drugs? You said connect with God, trauma, purpose, meaning adventures, like why else? Well, there's five main reasons that we're actually taught,
1: you know, we're taught this in school and it's what I teach to people. And one of them is blanking for me because I've been talking a lot today, but one of them is connecting with God, then seeking pleasure um easing pain um oh my god what are they it's like I've taught this so many times in this class I don't know I can't remember what the other two are now when I think about uh, modern times outside of you know what I would teach theoretically I think it's peer pressure I think it's mirroring what we see in our childhood environment um I think it's cultural and societal how, off, how much is it accepted? Yeah. Um, how much is it marketed? How much is it normalized? Um, people use, yeah, because of past trauma, it's an easy way to escape. And I would say that those are the reasons. You know, I think some people will say, <laughs> like I, what I hear a lot with my clients is, I like the way it feels. I like the way it tastes. And I think taste is maybe, you know, a factor in it when it comes to wine or beer or alcohol. Um, Like maybe that is the case, but it's not like you just taste it. And you probably also really like cake, but you're not eating cake every night. And it's because of the way the alcohol makes you feel. And so what is it doing? Mm. And so a lot of the times we can mask. We can say, I just drink socially. I like the taste of craft beer. I only drink one glass of wine and like all of those things are fine. It's like, I'm not saying that that's not okay, but there's something going on with you physiologically and you got to just figure out what that is so that when you know what that is, you know how you're being affected and you can kind of watch yourself with tolerance or withdrawal or increased use or whatever it is. Uh,
0: okay. Um, so we talked about like why people take drugs. You said something else. so I'm trying to differentiate this because I think they're different. It's like why people take, why they take drugs because they want like an outcome or want to get rid of something. You also said why we make that choice because mm. if I'm going to start using, we're not saying it's a straight up choice, but your background or your biological vulnerability may influence that choice Right That predisposition. So why we make that choice, what influences that that might lead to an addiction for someone? You said trauma. Do you have other ideas of what creates that vulnerability or predisposition to lean in that direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, it has a lot to do with our environment. well, I mean, and trauma is, in my definition, a lot of people, it's just anything that dysregulates your nervous system. And so what's important is to look in your environment and see how are other people regulating their nervous system, you know, so it can, you can mirror what your parents are doing. Maybe you have someone that, you know, calms down at night with wine or drinks a lot of beer during every family holiday. That can be an example. But I also think it's like society tells us that alcohol, I guess specifically, um, is pleasurable, but... We know enough that like it's gonna do more than just bring us pleasure. Like you get drunk, you get intoxicated. And so it may just be a lack of coping in general, lack of coping skills in general, because there's people that have been exposed to healthy coping skills, but they might not necessarily engage in their own healthy coping skills. We may want to find an escape. And so why would we make that choice? Maybe we have low self-esteem. Maybe we don't feel like we're worth addressing our own problems. Maybe someone told us once that all we did was run, and now we identify with that, and we Mm. run. Mm. There's lots of reasons.
0: I think that's powerful. I don't know if that's a self-fulfilling prophecy or just identity, if we're labeled with something like that. But I think that's really important for folks to consider how that might play in. I'm glad you said that. Yeah another topic change. And again, I'm just kind of like super curious because of my training and I love your vibe. So I was always really hammered with the prevention research institute guidelines because someone would get like a DUI and they'd have to take this class, a PRI class, I think. Gosh, dude, it's been so long. But the guideline was (laughs) three, two, one, like one drink, an hour, You could have two drinks spaced over the two-hour period, never more than three drinks ever. And so my rigid mind, I was like, done, three, two, one. Like, what do you think? Because you said something earlier, like, well, people need to, like, look at their threshold and what are they coping with? And are they running away from someone or something rather? And it was a lot more nuanced and individually driven. And I'm, I like that. So what do you think about like that guideline of never drink more than three? Here's how you space it out. And essentially they're trying to prevent blood alcohol levels from rising or prevent tolerance and dependence. Mm-hmm. I want to know if you have a differing opinion.
1: I like that actually. I feel like, cause that, to me sounds very rooted in the actual physiological processes that take place when you put alcohol in your body. And it gives you that space to observe, you know, and that's where it comes to mindfulness again, it's like pause and see how you're feeling, then move forward. And I also think, well, I mean, I think tolerance plays a role in it. Like somebody could have one and be like, I don't feel anything, you know? And so you have to also gauge that individually. But I also think humans like structure. Like, even if we look like we just, we want structure, we want patterns, we want to know what to expect, and we want boundaries. We think that we don't, but in a lot of ways we do. And that's why we have the societies that we have today, because we can function better. We know what to expect. We know where to go and when to go there and who to talk to and who to believe and who to trust. And So I think it's helpful for people. I also think that addiction is very compulsive and very impulsive. And so we want a container, we want limits, because when someone's really addicted, there isn't a limit. Now there's, you know, I think a lot of times people think that people that are addicted to drugs or alcohol or really anything that, that they're, I guess I'm going to stick to substances, because this is a lot of where it comes from, maybe sex addiction as well, but that it's a moral issue, you know, and it's not, it's just, I mean, any human being addicted or not addicted can make an immoral decision. Addiction itself does not make someone immoral. And I think that it's important for us to realize that, that a lot of the times we will make the choice that like, okay. So basically what I'm trying to say here is that even people that are addicted to drugs, they, we have limits. It's like, I was just on this podcast the other day with this person that that treats teenagers with addiction. She said, I had a session with this teenage boy who told me that he has all of these limits and these moral choices about who he'll sell marijuana to and who he won't. And that's something that I think is really interesting to take a look at is like, even if we're severely addicted, even if we're selling substances, like we have the ability to respond to to limitations and to boundaries and to systems and to respect. All that shit does not go out the window. And so I think for a lot of people, those boundaries can be helpful and we can move these systems and structures. For example, someone that sells drugs, we can move those systems from that act to instead Mm -hmm. the act of recovery and having those limits, one, two, three.
0: I love it. And I'm glad you brought up the moral issue And I'll disclose here when I was, you know, in practicum at my first substance use group, I remember being shocked. I was so judgmental and ignorant. And I really did assume that folks dealing with addiction were like moral failures or were bad people. And I had this epiphany in like my first group, like, holy shit. Like these people balance their checkbooks. They have jobs. We have degrees there's parents there's like good loving people and i was i mean i'm sharing a shameful realization to make a point like we are so um indoctrinated with this stigma and this judgment and fear around substance use but it is not a moral failing nor is it indicative of character or or someone's moral compass or ethical alignment and That was a really humbling, shocking realization for me. And I think we all have to kind of check that bias and our stigma and what we assume about people because of these behaviors that don't define them. So thanks for bringing up that moral point. And I hope listeners are able to connect with that. It's kind of it's so important.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it is. It is so important it kind of reminds me of, like, I've heard people before say that they can't understand how anyone could ever be trigger warning suicidal, you know, and I was talking to someone the other day about that on on my podcast, she's a mental health advocate that focuses on, on suicide, her past, and trying to stop people from doing that in the future. And she brought up the idea that that a lot of the people, a lot of people are averted to talking about suicide or believing that someone could actually feel that bad. And there's, she says, there's two reasons. And I agree with these two reasons when it comes to addiction too, is either they're bitter and that's kind of a harsh word, but it may apply. They're bitter because they've lost someone to suicide or they've never experienced that themselves. And so they don't know how that could be possible. And I feel the same way with, with addiction. It's Either you know someone in your family or a loved one that has, you know, their life has been taken, you know, broken down into pieces or someone's lost their life or a drunk driver took a family member or whatever it is. And it's these beliefs that we hold and these emotions that we hold on our own individually through our own life experiences that allow us to determine what we think about the world and the people in it and so i would love that you you know are suggesting that people take a look and go inward to figure out what are my beliefs about addiction and people that are addicted and where did they come from and that's you know bringing it back to mindfulness again and it's so we're so just like in our own heads with what we think and when we take a moment to think why do i think that or why do i feel that way a lot of the time we realize that i mean we were not born with these thoughts and these emotions they were conditioned onto us somehow. And so how, when, where, and why? And if you really do still truly believe that about people that are addicted, at least be able to stand with that and explain yourself why from your own perspective, not because you've been exposed to these different experiences.
0: Like what do you truly believe? And is yeah. that what you want to believe? That's empowering. I like that. Um again, your, your take is really refreshing, you know? And I, I think I'm so curious cause I've never been able to have this conversation. It's just kind of, Nope, this is status quo. This is what addiction's like. Here's how we treat substance use. So I really appreciate the nuanced person centered approach that you're taking. I think that's beautiful. And I agree. I'm with you. Yes. I'm team this, whatever this is. Thank you. Um, What's like a takeaway you want to give people? What What do you got? What do you want to say? You know, my takeaway,
1: what I want people to take away from this in a general sense is that it's very important to pause in your life and create space between your impulses. And that is applicable to addiction. Before you think, before you feel, before, if if that's possible, before you act, pause and think about why you're about to do what you're going to do, say what you're going to say, go where you're going to go, because that's not only going to prevent addiction in your possible future, but it can prevent deteriorating relationships and self-harm and just pause, pause and I swear to God, you will realize that there's so much more to you and so much more to the world. And hopefully for those of you that don't want to live another day, you'll find the reason to and mm-hmm. that pause.
0: I like that. Pause. Maybe the most important question of all, if you were going to get a face tattoo, what would it be?
1: That's a really good fucking question because I honestly might get one. I honestly might get one. I just got like this neck tattoo that says, says I exist. I love it. And I'm thinking about getting a face tattoo now. I don't know what it would be, but if I have to answer right now, oh my God. I don't know. So many different things just went through my head. like. like a brain right here just to freak people out you know like a tiny little one how funny? dude that'd be so weird you know that this um, is, my is my brain yes. there's a brain on the back
0: of my arm oh my god. <laughs> so i'm teen. yes i love that ah. yes that's funny okay um any other ideas for a face tattoo you're doing a great job let's see oh my god maybe i would just it would just say
1: tattoo just yes. say tattoo. Like you have a face tattoo? Yeah. this right there. Isn't that cool? <laughs> <Right
0: there. laughs> Probably oh, that. I Probably love that. it. I love it so much. <laughs> I say the same thing every time, but I feel like, oh, I feel like I could get like a little taco right here under my eye. Just a little guy or yes. like a field deal heel along like the hairline. That'd be badass. <laughs> this is when I need to turn off the podcast and just like hang out with you in real life. That's what this means. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. Before we wrap up, tell everyone where they can find you.
1: Uh, well, one, thank you so much for having me on here. I can be found at the truthdoctor.com. I also have a podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the space that I was speaking of, it's called your unconscious is showing. And we talk about everything that's there in that space and in your brain. Um, I also have free mental health courses where I'm trying to allow people that are low income that don't have the ability or have any other resources or have time. I have a bunch of free courses online that talk about childhood trauma and anxiety come out with a new one every month. So please check those out at thetruthdoctor.com. And then you can see my wonderful weird dance moves on TikTok (laughs) at the period truth. Period doctor. And that's the same handle on Instagram as well. That period truth period doctor.
0: I didn't know you did dance therapy, my friend.
1: Oh, I personalized dance therapy
0: for myself when others can just watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're just a dream. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Everyone give Dr. Tracy a follow. I really appreciate your free courses. I think that's an awesome resource. We'll drop that in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Therapy Thoughts podcast. But remember, this podcast is not therapy. This is for general informational purposes only. The information on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, illness, or disease. This also isn't intended to be financial, legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. Make sure you're always working with your own personal, licensed mental health counselor. May you be well.